Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm an author and writer. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. Last week we discussed the art forger Elmer de Hori. Who are we discussing this week, Ben? Well, I want to open this episode by conjuring up two images. Listener, wherever you are, I want you to close your eyes and imagine a stylish gay apartment. What do you see? Smooth, clean lines? Mid-century furniture? Maybe you're envisioning something like the glass house, designed by this week's subject, the architect Philip Cortelieu Johnson. Walls of uninterrupted sheets of clear glass, a life staged free of conventions. Now imagine a different image. Five sweaty men stand uncomfortably in a line. The two in the center are dressed quite differently from one another. The one on the right, in a black suit jacket and black t-shirt, is the Danish architect Bjarke Ingels, famed for his much-hyped contributions to sustainable design and infrastructure. To his left, in a suit and tie, stands the fascist president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. When this picture was taken, Ingels was visiting Brazil and consulting with Bolsonaro to investigate sustainable tourism. The last months, said the architect, have shown with jarring clarity that the social challenges of northeast Brazil are beginning to translate into ecological challenges. Presumably he was referring to fires caused by clear-cutting rainforest. In the last months, Bolsonaro has only recommitted to clear-cutting more rainforest, dispossessing the remaining indigenous tribes of their lands. He is, in other words, not precisely sustainable. After receiving sharp criticism for his visit, Ingalls was quoted as saying, quote, Dividing everything into two categories is neither accurate nor reasonable. The way the world evolves isn't binary, but rather gradual, and on a vast array of aspects and nuances. If we want to positively impact the world, we need active engagement, not superficial clickbait or ignorance. Ingalls, along with other architects like Norman Foster, has been involved in building palaces to despots in Kazakhstan's new-built capital, named after its current president, and is also building a new leisure resort city called Kadia, 45 kilometers from Riyadh, billed as a new capital of entertainment. There's also a confidential project there that Ingalls describes as a, quote, human-made ecosystem that is as close to a utopia as you dare imagine. And when the late Zaha Hadid was hired to design the World Cup Stadium in Qatar, she said, when asked about migrant workers, I have nothing to do with the workers. I think that's an issue the government, if there's a problem, should pick up. It's not my duty as an architect to look at it. How did architecture get here? Modernism began at the turn of the 20th century as the idea that an entire new way of living could be designed, along with a reformation of human nature, as the creation in steel and concrete and glass of the new proletarian whose age had come. By the mid-1950s, it had become an elite bobble, and today, architects express Marie Antoinette-like active disdain for the migrant workers dying to construct their fantasy forms. Philip Johnson may be more responsible than anyone else for this shift. Born into immense power, wealth, and privilege, he was a deeply committed elitist and dilettante fascist who used his money and connections to whitewash his youthful and ongoing embrace of Hitler in specific and far-right politics in general. As a key curator and preacher of the modernist gospel in the United States, he was central in divorcing the style from its egalitarian political aspirations. He partnered with architects greater than himself to bring the international style to the United States, and then helped to blow that style up, ending his career with a parade of glitzy, shiny corporate office towers, perfect for the brash, greed-is-good era of Reagan and Bush and Clinton. Over a remarkably long career, 
He was building more in his 80s than most people do in their 50s. He was one of America's most successful architects. In response to criticism of ugly 1980s office projects, he once said, quote, I am a whore. Very well paid. Philip Johnson was born in 1906 to the pinnacle of U.S. society. The son of a Cleveland lawyer, Homer Hosea Johnson, and the former Louisa Osborne Pope. He had an older sister, Jeanette, an older brother, Alfred, and a younger sister, Theodate. Theodate? Theodate. It's also, anytime anybody in America has three names, you know that that's, the, that's that sort of old school wasp elite. Um, the family traced itself back to the Jansen family uh, of New Amsterdam, and uh, among his ancestors were the Huguenot Jacques Cordelieu, who laid out the first town plan of New Amsterdam, which later became New York, for Peter Stuyvesant. This was a wealthy family. The children had multilingual governesses, Fräulein Titelmann and Fräulein Dörner, who taught him his German prayers and nursery rhymes. At the age of five, he was installed at the first of a series of elite academic institutions. First, he attended the Laurel School, the most ex expensive local kindergarten, where a special exception was made to the usually girls-only rule for the young Philip. He then attended the University School for Boys, where Philip's hatred of athletics and manual labor, which was central to the curriculum, meant he earned terrible grades. Oh, I can just see him now. His parents removed him to the still-elite public schools of the wealthy suburb of Shaker Heights. The school was far from where they lived, and so Philip and Theodate were driven by their chauffeur in their Brooks Brothers suits to school every day. It sounds like that bit in The Simpsons of Mr. Burns as a kid. <laughs> Very much so. Actually kind of looked like Mr. Burns when he got old. The young Philip stuttered and developed a tendency to fly into violent tantrums, which his father would try to curb by throwing glasses of cold water at his face. Homer and Louisa were believers in the healing power of fresh air, and so the children slept outdoors on screened-in porches all year round, even in winter. When his older brother Alfred died of mastoditis at the age of five, the parents continued to keep the other children sleeping outdoors only stopping when Philip and Theodate developed mastodoid infections of their own that would continue to cause them problems for the rest of their lives. Wow. By his preteen years, the family was spending the cold months in North Carolina, meaning that Philip was taken in and out of different schools twice a year. Later, he would remember that he did not like his parents. He thought of his mother as a cold fish and his father as her distracted consort. At the age of 12, he remembered telling his younger sister, Theodate, that he was having odd feelings about classmates at his boys' school. He asked her what it meant, and she had no reply. When he was 13, his father was sent to Paris and called for the family to join him. His father had been named to the Liquidation Committee, which was appointed to dispose of American munitions that were left on World War I battlefields. Philip managed to escape his family a fair bit that summer and began to explore the city of Paris on his own. But at the end of the summer, he was sent off to yet another private school in Geneva, and when the family returned to the United States, he was sent to the final in the series of private boarding schools, a place called Hackley on the Hudson River Valley in New York. This was a school where both students and faculty were supposed to be from the right sort of Anglo-Saxon families. This is a school where Philip was voted most likely to succeed. Students reported that his favorite pastime was talking to teachers, including his unmarried English instructor, Frank Ellis Bogues, who was known, apparently, to all of the students as Daddy. <laughs> I leave no comment, but... Um, in this school, 
had an arrangement with our good old friend from this program, Harvard University, so that all of its graduates would be admitted directly without any admissions examinations. And so off Philip went to Harvard in the fall of 1923. As a parting gift before college, his father gave him some stock in Alcoa, the Aluminum Corporation of America, and during the boom of the 1920s, that stock soared and Philip would graduate from college a millionaire, meaning many tens of millions now. Uh, From Mummy, he got the gift of a specially arranged student trip to Europe between his freshman and sophomore years, and upon his return, he moved out of the dorms and into a private apartment and bought himself an expensive, peerless motor car. He would use his wealth to invite friends over to take them to concerts and to the theater, but his depression grew as he felt torn between his social world and his homosexuality. His grades dropped, and his parents worried and sent him to see a neurologist who told him that his condition was common in the arts and sent him home to rest. His father, on the other hand, told him, quote, Boys don't fall in love with boys. Do something to get your mind off it. Forget about it. You'll be all right. After a break, he returned to Harvard and concentrated in Greek, later switching to philosophy. Again, no comment. In 1928, he took another long trip, including time spent in Egypt, where he was overcome by his attraction to the Arab population and began dressing in Arab garb. Oh, Jesus Christ. He had his first sexual experience with a museum guard in a dark corner of the Cairo Museum surrounded by antiquities. After returning to the United States and being overcome by another bout of depression and drink, he discovered that most dangerous of all sad boys, Nietzsche. And there's nothing wrong with Nietzsche as part of a balanced diet, but taken alone it has the potential (laughs) to destroy entire civilizations. Listeners of this program might recall the dalliances with Nietzsche that reportedly led the similarly aged, classed, and located Leopold and Loeb to kill. Along with Nietzsche, he began to discover modernism as a style. He met the, let's say, confirmed bachelor, Alfred Barr, who at 27 was then becoming a major spokesman for modernist art, giving a series of lectures at Wellesley College and Harvard. And Barr had just been appointed the director of a new museum being built in New York, the first ever Museum of Modern Art. Barr offered Philip a job if he could learn more about this artistic style and this architecture. So once again, he sailed to Europe with instructions from Barr as to what to look at, the Bauhaus at Desso, the Hook of Holland, etc. Before sailing, he bought himself a brand new Packard touring car that he then took on the cruise ship and then drove himself around Europe in. Arriving in Berlin in 1929, he soaked himself in architecture, art, opera, cabaret, and gay sex, all things for which Berlin was then and remains a world capital. But unlike his tour guides and friends, he also admired the luxurious Baroque palaces of Central Europe, He went to Bayreuth and was overwhelmed by his experience of hearing Wagner. Seated next to the composer's son Siegfried at dinner, he reported feeling the younger Wagner's hand rubbing his thigh. Apparently did not return the uh, come on. Upon returning to the United States, he finished his degree at Harvard finally, seven years after starting. And if you're thinking, well, this is 1929, wasn't there a Great Depression beginning? His wealth meant that he was totally uh, insulated from the effects of the crash. So he moves to New York uh, in 1930 and joins a group of young supporters of the Museum of Modern Art, which gave him an office and a secretary, but no salary, although it's not like he needed one. There, the Museum of Modern Art, together with Barr and the architectural historian Henry Rutchell Hitchcock, he curated an exhibition and published a book called The International Style, Modern Architecture Since 1922. In this incredibly influential exhibit, for the first time, visitors saw in spotlit models and framed photographs 
images of works by Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, and other pioneering European modernists. Frank Lloyd Wright was invited to participate, but was cranky. His style differentiated greatly from both the curatorial regime and from the other architects, but his fame meant that he had to be included. Attracted to the international style by its aesthetics, rather than by its intellectual roots, Johnson took forceful action to push social housing, possibly the main concern of the founders of architectural modernism, to the sidelines of the show and the book. Johnson, Barr, and Hitchcock were concerned with, in Barr's words, quote, a modern style as original, as consistent, as logical, and as widely distributed as any in the past. At a moment of 25% unemployment, with Hooverville shantytowns dotting the American landscape, Johnson turned down an invitation to a national conference on the housing crisis, and made sure to place the essay on social housing at the very back of the exhibition catalog. The exhibition was a major success, and Johnson became the museum's curator of architecture and design, curating shows of mass-produced industrial objects that he valued for their aesthetics. Given the importance of this particular show and book in spreading the gospel of the international style in the U.S., that decision to de-emphasize social housing was really very influential in terms of how modernism was received in the U.S., it was received as a style rather than as a, a way of thinking or as an approach that had ethical or political considerations. So in the summer of 1932, he went back to Berlin. And at that time, the Weimar Republic was in its final stages of breakdown and fascist takeover. Having been encouraged to go see that exciting new Nietzschean leader Adolf Hitler by his friend, the art critic Helen Appleton Reed, he went to a rally on a field outside Potsdam. That day, he experienced a revolution of the soul, a series of revelations he would ultimately describe as, quote, totally febrile. He told his biographer decades later, quote, you simply could not fail to be caught up in the excitement of it by the marching songs, by the crescendo and climax of the whole thing as Hitler came on at last to harangue the crowd. He reported feeling thrilled at the sight of, quote, all those blonde boys in black leather marching past towards their ebullient leader. Oh, fucking idiot. And this began a long association that Johnson had with Nazism and far-right politics. The Nazis were, he would say, quote, daylight in the ever-darkening atmosphere of contemporary America, end quote. He would later sort of use his homosexuality to try to paint his Nazism as having been an entirely kind of sexual attraction, but he would later attend American Nazi party rallies at Madison Square Garden, started an organization called the Gray Shirts to back the governor of Louisiana, Huey Long, who before his assassination was thought to be a potential fascist leader for the United States, and became a financial benefactor of the Christian mobilizers, which were an anti-Semitic group of street thugs. Quote, we seem to forget, Philip said, that we live in a community of people to whom we are bound by the ties of existence, to some of whom we owe allegiance and obedience, and to others of whom we owe leadership and instruction. In his high society circles in New York, he kept lists of fascist sympathizers that he would later share with Nazi diplomats, and he hosted fascist gatherings at his duplex apartment shared with his sister, Theodate. For the Examiner, a Connecticut quarterly, he published an admiring review of two translations of Mein Kampf, and followed those with an article titled, Are We a Dying People?, in which he lamented, quote, the contemporary decline in fertility unique in the history of the white race. He toured Hitler youth camps. He became a fervent supporter of the American fascist preacher Charles Coughlin, for whom he built a custom-designed white grandstand to deliver condemnations of Jews, Bolsheviks, and other nefarious associates of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He reported in France for Coughlin's newspaper, Social Justice, that, quote, 
Lack of leadership and direction in the French state has let the one group get control who always gained power in a nation's time of weakness, the Jews, end quote. He traveled to Germany in 1938 to take courses on Nazism from the German state. A few weeks after the start of the war, he was embedded in a press group traveling with the German military during the invasion of Poland. Quote, the German green uniforms made the place look gay and happy, end quote, he said in a letter. Quote, there were not many Jews to be seen. We saw Warsaw burn and Modlin being bombed. It was a stirring spectacle. And during this time, he seemed to believe that Hitler would eventually abandon his anti-modernism and come around to the Miesian aesthetic. When World War II began, he quickly tried to backpedal and distance himself from this record. His money and connections protected him. He was seemingly protected from indictment, unlike many of his fascist collaborators, by his friends, the Rockefellers, good friends to have. He enrolled in the Harvard Graduate School of Design as an architecture student, studying with Walter Gropius and Marcel Breuer, who in a bit of sick irony had been forced out of Europe by the Nazi takeover. There, he organized an anti-fascist league, for what I presume were entirely honest intellectual commitments. He even enlisted in the army. In 1942, his former secretary, interviewed by the FBI as part of an investigation of whether he might be a disloyal soldier, reported that Johnson had said that he felt the fate of the country rested on his shoulders and that he himself wanted to be America's Hitler. The investigation additionally revealed that his personal library included the Nazi manifesto Signale der Neuen Zeit, Signals of a New Time by Joseph Goebbels, the anti-Semitic tract Handbuch der Judenfrage, Handbook of the Jewish Question by Theodor Frisch, Germany's Third Empire, the 1923 book that first popularized the idea of a Third Reich by Arthur Müller Vandenbroek, and the radio discourses of Father Coughlin. Nonetheless, with the assistance of the Rockefellers, he was approved for service, which he spent safely on the shores of the United States. He would later write off his period of Nazism as erotically induced and stupid youthful folly. However, even later in life, he would continue to make occasional pro-Hitler comments. In 1964, well after the end of the war, he insisted in letters to a friend that Hitler was, quote, better than Roosevelt, period. So after graduating from the graduate school in 1946, and remember, he's getting his architecture degree, but he's 40 years old at this point, Philip returned to the Museum of Modern Art as a curator. And in 1949, he would build his most famous work, The Glass House Residence, a weekend getaway in Tony, New Canaan, Connecticut. The Glass House, uh, he designed as his own residence, and it was influenced by the Farnworth House, which was built shortly before it by Mies van der Rohe. Influenced is sort of a polite word. It's basically a copy. Johnson always said that he had never claimed to be an original, and it was just a matter of knowing who to steal from. And while he was in the design process for the Glass House, uh, Johnson curated a show featuring a model of the to-be-built Farnsworth House. The Glass House is a 56 by 32 foot glass rectangle seated at the edge of a crest on Johnson's estate looking over a pond. The sides of the glass, uh, the sides of the building are made out of large sheets of glass rimmed in charcoal painted steel. The interior floor is 10 inches above the ground. The interior is one open space divided by low walnut cabinets. A brick cylinder contains the bathroom and is the only object that reaches from floor to ceiling. Mark J. Stern writes of the glass house that it, quote, represented for Johnson a parodic paradox of closeted homosexual life in the mid-20th century. Anyone can see into the central space, into the living room, which represents so many centuries of traditional family living, yet the goings-on inside the house are an utter inversion of the sexual societal norm. The house's visitors were often gay, but just as gay people hid in plain sight, 
so too did the visitors exhibit their homosexuality within the glass house while perpetually protected by the sheer barrier of the glass walls. In addition, the glass house contains the visual pun of its own guest house, located only yards away. While the glass house's walls are a transparent closet door, the totally enclosed windowless guest house represents the true closet, the repression of self, the claustrophobically enclosed space in which gay people are forced to relegate their hearts and souls. Taken as a whole, this piece of property provides magnificent insight into Johnson's attitudes and beliefs, and it serves as a marvelous example of gay-influenced, gay-oriented 20th century architecture. To that, I want to add some thoughts about the structural realities needed to hide this glass house in plain sight on the rolling Ponus Ridge Road in New Canaan, Connecticut. If the glass house was queer space, then it was also wealthy, even aristocratic space. If the glass house was a glass closet, it was also a closet of power. Any untoward or unseeable behavior between Johnson and the series of men he would always refer to as his companions, or anyone else, could take place behind the blank walls of the guest house. Here was an enactment of queer space, but also an enactment of the divorce of American modernism from socialist or even social democratic politics, its ascension to the pinnacle of elite style. Describing the inspirations that produced his glass house, he once suggested that the idea of the illuminated house at night came, quote, from a burnt wooden village I saw once where nothing was left but foundations and chimneys of brick. Oh, that's horrific. And his biographer Mark Lamster plausibly wonders whether he, quote, intentionally recreated the stirring spectacle that was the burning of Jewish shtetls he had witnessed through driving through Poland with the Wehrmacht. And that uh, characterization of the burning of shtetls as a stirring spectacle was Johnson's. So in 1960, he met David Whitney, who would become his companion for the rest of his life. Johnson would later remember that he was, quote, an 18-year-old or something. He was a student up at the Rhode Island School of Design. We met because of Jasper Johns's flag painting. He said, why did you buy that flag? It was his first question to me in the world. He just came up to me after a lecture at Brown University and said, why did you buy the flag? I said, because Alfred Barr told me to. I told the truth too soon, as usual. So then we got started. What's interesting there is not only uh, Philip Johnson meeting this much younger man um, in this context, but also the fact that he basically admits throughout his life that all of his taste was just sort of having followed the correct people. Johnson was at this time what we might call semi-closeted or in a closet of power. When Calvin Tompkins profiled Philip Johnson for The New Yorker in 1977, the architect pleaded with him to not identify him as gay because Johnson was at that time negotiating with AT&T executives for the commission to design a new headquarters on Madison Avenue and thought the disclosure might jeopardize his appointment. Um, the author agreed to do it, and in that piece, David Whitney was discreetly identified as his, quote, friend. And the closets of power, just to talk more about that term, this is a clash in a generation where homosexuals are invited to the fancy dinner parties, but they're not invited to bring along their companion. Single gay men were most welcome. Uh, Philip Johnson remembered, quote, Mrs. Vincent Astor said she always had a homosexual to dinner because they were the only people who could talk. And so with Whitney, he created a gay circle at the glass house of artistic elites. This was a place where you would have weekends with Merce Cunningham, Jasper Johns, Andy Warhol, Robert Rochenberg, um, and all of these artists also contributed works to Johnson's large private collection. As he built this gay social circle, he became an enthusiastic, if somewhat dilettantish, corporate architect. A series of small buildings around the United States cemented his growing reputation, including a synagogue project and a building in the new country of Israel, both of which some interpreted as apologies for his Nazi collaboration. 
Not that he needed to earn a living, but by the time he turned 50, architecture began to pay him well. Up until this point, he had never had anything that you'd really call a job. In 1956, he partnered with Mies van der Rohe to design the Seagram's Tower, an icon of mid-century American business power. He helped steer the Seagram's Commission to van der Rohe through Phyllis Bronfman Lambert, the MoMA patron and the heiress daughter of Samuel Bronfman, the country's CEO. Van der Rohe selected Johnson as his collaborator, believing him to be totally loyal to his style, if an inferior architect. Mies took the broad design lead, setting the tower back from Park Avenue to create an open plaza that changed office building fashion. The building was clad in luxurious bronze. Philip took the lead in designing the Four Seasons Restaurant, an enormous power lunch destination. The restaurant consisted of two separate 60-by-60-foot rooms with 20-foot-high ceilings. The grill room featured French walnut paneling and sculptures by Richard Lippold, the pool room an ornamental marble pool surrounded by trees changing with the seasons. The hallway between them featured, of course, a hand-painted stage curtain done by Picasso for the Ballet Russe. Metal curtains were set to ripple by special hidden air ducts. The artist Mark Rothko was engaged to paint a series of works for the restaurant in 1958. Accepting the commission, he secretly resolved to create, quote, something that will ruin the appetite of every son of a bitch who ever eats in that room. He abandoned uh, that commission after deciding that nothing he could do would ever disturb the atmosphere of smug self-satisfaction. Instead, the restaurant showed works by Ronnie Landfield and James Rosenquist borrowed from Johnson's own personal collection, and the restaurant remained open until last year. But Johnson was less loyal than Van der Rohe had thought. In the 1960s, he began to depart from the orthodoxies of the international style, having successfully embalmed it into American corporate taste. Bored by the formalist metaphysics of Louis Kahn, with his reflections on what a material wanted to be, and by the social convictions of brutalism, with its desires to remake public space and build public housing, a topic that utterly bored Johnson, he instead began experimenting with ornamentation. His design for the New York State Theater in 1964, as part of Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, that replaced a cleared slum on the Upper West Side, is a thousand-ton bomb of travertine glass, arches, red velvet, jeweled chandeliers, and everything else mid-century, elite, and tacky. He was responsible for convincing all of the Lincoln Center architects to coat their buildings in travertine. He dreamed in lectures at the time of enormous national taxes or levies that could be used to create dream cities under the control of kings or dictators where emperors, like his favorite Augustus, could make cities out of marble. He built buildings for corporations and for large institutions, like New York University, including its monolith Elmer Holmes Bobst Library, named after the pharmaceutical tycoon and Nixon bestie who once wrote, quote, Jews have troubled the world from the very beginning. If this beloved country of ours ever falls apart, the blame rightly should be attributed to the malicious action of Jews in complete control of our communications. Bobst, after his death, was credibly accused of child abuse, the American elite almost as special as the English. In 1967, Johnson entered a new phase of his career, founding a partnership with the architect John Burgey. Johnson and Burgey won commissions for a series of new and spectacularly tacky urban skyscrapers. In the late 1970s, departing even further from modernism, the firm built some shiny glass concoctions, skyscrapers with gothic points, or that leaned towards one another, or that were covered like some kind of Sims nightmare with Palladian windows. Google International Place in Boston if you don't like your eyes. <laughs> it's literally, it's a giant pink tower covered in fake Palladian windows. 
He then turned to the Crystal Cathedral, a glass palace of evangelical megatackiness in Orange County, California, shaped by a star and surrounded by strip malls and parking lots. If Johnson would, in speeches, decry sprawling car-centered culture, he certainly was instrumental in creating a lot of it, and of living in cities built off its ill-gotten gains. The Crystal Cathedral was designed for the pioneering televangelist Robert Schuller, a showman who started preaching above the snack bar at the Orange Drive-In Theater near Disneyland, and who helped strip the dour elements from Calvinism to create the Prosperity Gospel, a right-wing middle-class religion that emphasized the predestination to do good and do well. The building was impressive, but its elaborate cooling system often failed when temperatures soared above 26 Celsius or 80 Fahrenheit, which is a problem in Southern California. Sometimes interior temperatures were measured above 110 Fahrenheit or 44 Celsius. Sunglasses were needed for early morning or late evening (laughs) services, and the building was recently extensively modified to serve as a Roman Catholic church after Schuller's church went bankrupt. Another notable 1980s postmodern work was the AT&T Tower in New York City, which is covered in granite with a parody Renaissance entryway and a Chippendale-style crown. That building challenged the dominance of modernism and paved the way for postmodernism to take over corporate America, in the same way that Seagram's had cemented the international style as the style of the American elite. Johnson also designed the Lipstick Building, round and pink, in New York City, which became the headquarters of Bernie Madoff's years-long Ponzi scheme. After his firm went into bankruptcy, he left and again went solo. In 1994, at the age of 88, he formed his final architectural firm with Alan Ritchie, Philip Johnson Alan Ritchie Associates. It was at this time that he got into deconstructivism and began to think about architectural buildings as sculptural objects. This was in the mid-1990s, when architects like Frank Gehry began pioneering the use of swooping and distorted forms. Not to be outdone, Johnson added a Gary-like pavilion gatehouse to his estate at the Glasshouse. For more than 70 years, he had been a kingmaker, putting people before the public, getting them clients, etc., and towards the end of his life, he developed a group of architects around him called the Kids, and it was the Starchitect class that we know today, Norman Foster, Rem Kulas, Zaha Hadid, Richard Meyer, Michael Graves. And so it was Johnson, in a way, who invented the idea of the Starchitect, or the Celebrity Architect. There were always multiple Johnsons, the publicly asexual and the privately gay, the privately bookish and the public consorter with tacky god-kings. One of his key late clients was a man named Donald Trump. In the early 1990s, he wanted some casino projects in Atlantic City to get a little bit of extra class, and Johnson, trying to get his new firm off the ground, was all too happy to oblige. He did that work for Trump, and later reskinned a 1950s skyscraper in golden glass to create the Trump International Hotel and Tower on the Upper West Side. The architecture critic Paul Goldberger recently wrote, quote, The Trump chapter of Johnson's long career seemed just a bizarre footnote when it happened in the 1990s. Now it's a little harder to dismiss. Outwardly, the two men could not have been more different. Johnson could talk circles around anyone, and Trump is verbally inept. Johnson had contempt for Trump's vulgarity and lack of intellectual curiosity, and Trump had no understanding of Johnson's cultivation. The beautiful little study at the glass house would have been a prison to Trump. But now that we know Trump is more than a real estate developer, it's hard not to think back to Johnson's infatuation with dictators, his snobbery, his obsession with being noticed, and wonder if they did not have a little more in common than it seemed. Philip Johnson's last completed building was an unremarkable suburban arts center in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He died in his sleep at the glass house in 2005 at the age of 98. His partner David, only 66, died later that year. 
We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff. Patreon. T-shirts, episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Wow, thanks for that. That's an amazing story. I never realized he was such a shit. Oh, he was a real shit. I mean, he was really a Nazi. Like, he was really, it was committed. It wasn't like he didn't say one nice thing about the Nazis in the middle of another career, in the middle of a longer career. Uh, Not that there'd really be an excuse for that, but he was organizing he wanted to create a fascist paramilitary organization called the gray shirts based off of the brown shirts uh, to support Huey Long and was only frustrated in that because of Huey Long's assassination um, he's doing set design for Father Coughlin he stops all of his architectural work and stops all of his curatorial work in this period of the 1930s and really devotes himself to the cause of fascism in a very dedicated devoted way he's working with Nazi diplomats he's working with Nazi spies he was a I mean, he's a real, and then it just all went away. It all went away immediately as soon as it was inconvenient. Because what he really liked, what he really liked was being on the winning side. And so then it became clear that the third, the thousand year Reich wasn't going to happen. Uh, what was going to happen was this American corporate century. And so, um, whatever he had to do to kind of clear out the old associations, he did. And then he was, you know, well on his way to becoming the sort of, um, thin veneer of class for, uh, these, um, for these CEOs who wanted to build these buildings. And again, I mean, Johnson, because of that 1932 show and book, always had this reputation as this great, if not great architect, then at least great thinker, this sort of great figure, this great somebody. Um, but at the end of the day, that entire reputation was purchased and purchased by inherited wealth, nonetheless, and he was just willing to do anything with it for anybody. And I mean, the buildings are just awful. I mean, you look at them like Google Philip Johnson buildings and look at pictures of these buildings or go to them. I mean, they're just hideous. They are hideous. Why, why was he forgiven or why was his history glossed over um, after the war by, um, by the people he was working for? The people he was working for, it's pretty easy to understand why. I mean, I don't know that, the American corporate class had particularly um, anti-fascist beliefs other than maybe uh, believing in sort of patriotism of the United States. And so when the United States enemies were fascists, there you go. Um, I mean, it was the Rockefellers who got him off from being prosecuted, which is the thing that actually would have ended his career. Um, Information was also harder to come by. Um, the depth of these Nazi connections, uh, there was a book that came out two years ago um, called The Man in the Glass House, Philip Johnson, Architect of the Modern Century by Mark Lamster. And that's where um, a lot of this stuff from the 30s got rediscovered. But, you know, it's not like there were uh, lots of copies of Father Coughlin's journals circulating in the 1950s for people to think about. So it was pretty, it was sort of easier to cover up maybe than it would be now. Um 
And again, I mean, it's just, you know, having the right kind of friends who can get you off and then also just having so much money that you can buy off any opposition or you can buy off all the people that might uh, sort of raise the alarm or that might be opposed to your presence someplace, um, as he seems to have done at Harvard and with, with Vanderbilt and with other people, um, will get you pretty far. And to what degree do you think that his architectural design was um, consciously influenced by his sexuality? Was he really thinking through sexuality with his work? Like, I know you referenced that um, that article that suggested that, that that the glass house was somehow an inversion of the mid-century closet. Was he thinking through those ideas of his sexuality in his work? I don't really think so. Um, I, my sense is that he was not a particularly reflective person. Um there's also, I mean, the, the thing that he would really talk about his sexuality as having influenced uh, was his Nazism. Uh, that's when that's the thing that he said most about publicly when he would talk publicly about his sexuality, which is astonishing um, because it, first of all, is no excuse. And it second of all, is this kind of transparent attempt to turn um, deep ideological commitment, it really must be said, into this kind of... Um, easy to dismiss, youthful, erotic fling. I think he also used the fact that he lived so long and his career went on for so long. I don't think people ever quite had it in their heads how old he was. And so people maybe thought, oh, well, in the 30s, he was just a student or something instead of realizing when he was in Germany writing this stuff, he's a 33-year-old man. I mean, he's really old enough to know better. Um, that's when he's writing about the you know wonderful spectacle of seeing the shtetls burning in Poland. Thanks a lot, fucker. Um, the other thing uh, is that Johnson, I mean, the, the thing where you maybe might see some connection between sexuality and style, and I don't know if it's conscious, but I think it's something where you can, um, something where you can get into certain kinds of gay sensibilities beyond this idea of the glass house as the inverted closet, is maybe thinking about this uh, emphasis on style, right? And on uh, design as being, for Johnson, fundamentally about style, and sort of the application of style to different questions of either presentation or packaging or um, or construction, if that makes any sense. So instead of thinking, you know, I, I am an architect or I am a designer who approaches um, the problem of how to make a building from a question of either what the site wants or what the material wants to be, uh, for Johnson, the question is always, um, what should the style be, right? What should it what should it look like and what should the way that it looks communicate socially, right? Um, and that, I think, is to some extent uh, or can be understood as one kind of a um, gay subjectivity, this kind of preoccupation with style and with social codes. Um, I think in some cases that can create really wonderful art or architecture or work. I mean, I don't want to dismiss style as a concern, Um I do think that in Johnson's case, it led to work that is at best shallow and at worst spectacularly ugly. Do you think this um, latterly sort of justifying or excusing his fascist tendencies as somehow an erotic uh, component of his homosexuality was him trying to uh, weaponize his homosexuality against the accusations that he's a fascist to say like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fascist. I'm just a pervert. Pretty much. Um, you know, I'm not a fashion, but sort of a silly, is you know, it's sort of silly and, and, and consequenceless. Um, I mean, it, it's maybe worth thinking a little bit about some of the thinking about, um, gays and fascism, the gayness of fascism and the fascism of gayness potentially, um, 
disclaimer before we begin. Um, there's this awful book by Scott Lively um, called The Pink Swastika, which uh, perpetrates the horrible lie that somehow the Nazis were uh, gay-led and therefore gays are responsible for the Holocaust or some absolute bullshit like that. No, uh, queer people, same-sex loving people, gender non-conforming people um, were to a large extent victims of uh, and persecuted by uh, or survivors of fascism and not uh, perpetrators of it. That being said, um, there is a certain kind of undeniable homoerotic nature to certain kinds of fascist embodiments. There's this book by Andrew Wackervos that we talked about a bit during our Enstream episode called Stormtrooper Families about um, the sort of encouragement uh, or development of uh, homoerotic bonds in Nazi paramilitaries in the Sturmabteilung, uh, what Johnson would refer to as all those uh, beautiful blonde boys in black leather. Um, and on a more theoretical level, there's uh, Jack Halberstam's reflections on fascism and male homosexuality and these kinds of aesthetics. Um, there's also this other thing that we've sometimes spoken about a bit on the show, which is this kind of uh, post-World War II uh, traumatic, I, I think, or, or originating out of some kind of mass trauma, but this kind of reconstruction of the aesthetics of BDSM sex from being pre-World War II, primarily kind of about the um, class differentials within the manor house. So it's all, you know, maid and lord and shit like that. And it suddenly all turns to being jackboots and um, other kinds of fascist paraphernalia that become the kind of primary iconography there. So there's a lot going on in all of that. Um, that is to say that, you know, I believe Johnson, um, when he says that there's something kind of, uh, erotically appealing to him about, uh, all of these blonde boys in their Nazi uniforms. Um, but I also think that he is fundamentally ethically responsible for having been a committed fascist in the 1930s. And that's, not something I think that he should have been allowed to live down as much as he did, and I hope it's something that tarnishes his legacy for as long as he has one. So, Ben, um, Philip Johnson, I think I know where this is going. Uh, good gay? Bad gay? Bad not gay? Bad gay. Very, very bad gay. Seriously, people, Google international place. I mean, yes, he was a Nazi, and that's terrible and awful, um, and that's worse than the hideous buildings from the 1980s, but also just, I mean, a, an architect of uh, whose uh, highs were mediocrity and whose lows were uh, profound tackiness. Yeah, he's he gives off a sort of impression of this, like, fated son of the bourgeoisie or, or the super rich. He's just sort of sailing through life. Oh, this is a bit of fun. This is, you know, and uh, he, just, he just comes across as, uh, yeah, tacky and fascistic. Tacky and fascistic, two of gay's favorite things. So if you want to read more about Johnson, there's a, a bunch of articles um, that I'm going to link in the show notes, and I won't say all of now, uh, but just to name some of the books. Um, there's a book by Mark Wortman called 1941 Fighting the Shadow War, which is about um, different Americans' involvements in um, fascist thinking and organizing in the 1930s and 40s in Europe. Um, that was also excerpted in Vanity Fair, and that excerpt is also linked in the show notes. Uh, there's a 1996 biography by Franz Schulze called Philip Johnson, Life and Work, 
There is the 2018 book by Mark Lamster that uh, brought out a lot of the details of this Nazi past, The Man in the Glass House, Philip Johnson, Architect of the Modern Century. Um, the Gay Metropolis, The Landmark History of Gay Life in America, written by Charles Kaiser. The Philip Johnson Tapes, interviews by Robert A.M. Stern, which are published uh, in 2008. And um, that last quote from Paul Goldberger is from his review of Mark Lamster's uh, biography of Johnson, uh, and excerpts of that biography and an interview with Lamster are also published in Metropolis Magazine, and those will be linked uh, in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. You can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Utopian Drivel, which is at hugh.substack.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bad. 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 Bad.